But uh, one of the things that I like to share with people is the scriptures are extremely clear about several things regarding the rise of evil uh, on, on our world. So we're going to take a look at First, of course, a few uh, verses in the book of Genesis. We are slowly making our way through the book of Genesis. And uh, today we're looking at Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 13. And instead of focusing on those verses, which is what I would normally do, I'm going to take a, I'm going to pull back and I'm going to give you a big picture of why I believe uh, sin was permitted to exist, hypothetically exist, and then also why, in fact, it arose and has continued. So looking at our passage today, Genesis chapter 3, we begin reading. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. At, the, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. The serpent that was the shrewdest of all the wild animals definitely is portrayed throughout scripture as the devil. And in a variety of ways, that has played out for us in unimaginable pain. I want to then address these two questions. Why was evil allowed? And why did evil arise and continue? These two questions are not asking the same thing. We often confuse them, but they are not the same questions. They're separate and very distinct from each other. Now, we did examine the answers to these two questions in uh, times past. Uh, several years ago, we addressed the, the uh, 
second one. And then recently when we dealt with why should we pray, we dealt with the answers to the uh, first question. But since we have some guests here today, I want to take a look at this again. Uh, briefly speaking, on the left, I believe, are going to be found the answers for why God permitted sin to uh, exist. Uh, hypothetically speaking, not necessarily in reality, not in concrete detail. But love is worth the risk. Love is worth the risk of sin coming into existence. That's the bottom line. And love is so valuable to each one of us that to love and to be loved is the best thing ever. On the right side, however, are a variety of things that help establish the infinite goodness of God and, in fact, tell us some things about this little-known, little-preached-upon idea. Sin has absolutely no cause for its origin or its development. This is very clear in Scripture. So we're going to uh, go down this path together. Um, I'm going to uh, go to the question, why was evil allowed? So what does this mean when we say that love requires freedom, and freedom creates risk, and risk creates moral responsibility, and moral responsibility is generally proportionate, to influence, and influence is generally irrevocable, and power to influence is limited. What are these about? What do they mean? Love requires freedom. Real love has to be freely given. It cannot be coerced. You cannot be made to love someone else. If you were to be made to love them, it would be phony, forced out of you, not freely given. God does not love us because he has to. He does not want us to love him because we have to. He wants us to love him because we find in him admirable attributes of character. And he wants us to also have at lovely attributes of character. God does not force us to love him. That would be disgusting to him. It would be morally repugnant to him on every level. Yet freedom creates risk, and that is the scary part of life. If you tell someone, for example, that in response uh, to your loving them, they do not have to love you in return, then you run this risk of them not loving you in return. And that's going to cause you some pain. But here's the real kicker for human beings. If the person that you are choosing not to love is also the person who keeps you alive, physically keeps you alive as God keeps us alive, then to not love God is to also bring pain into your own life. Are you following me? To not love God, the creator and sustainer of your life, is to cause you pain. So, Everyone's running a risk. God runs a risk by letting you say no to his love, and you run a risk by saying no to his love. But here's the truth. If great loss can be experienced, then great gain must also be able to be experienced, right? 
you will be able to occupy, as it were, the same character qualities or have the same character qualities as God, the great lover of the universe. You will become a lover as well, someone capable of loving and being loved. So it seems to me that great gain is available to all of us. Love is surely worth the risk. Risk creates moral responsibility. If I say to you, 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 may, you, know, you don't have to love me in response to my love, then I have basically invested with you moral responsibility. You get to choose it, uh, and so that's on you, it's not on me. But what's interesting also is that the outcome of your choice is also on you and not on me, right? Moral responsibility means that you are responsible for the choice you made. So, risk creates moral responsibility, always. Whatever fallout comes, comes because of the decision you and I have made. A wise use of your freedom is going to create self-respect inside of you. And it's also going to create an increased capacity for you to love others more and better. You're morally stronger uh, now, and you'll be morally stronger in the future if you make a wise decision today. On the surface, sometimes, when somebody starts talking about moral responsibility, we go, oh, bummer. I, you know, I don't really want anyone to hold me responsible for anything. But on the other side of the coin, to be held morally responsible is to be told you are significant. You're important. The choices that you make are going to make a difference in your world as well as in your life. And so it's not at all a bad thing to be held responsible. It means you're important. Moral responsibility is generally proportionate to influence. So the easiest way to describe that is to look at somebody who is a world leader. Look at your parents, your teachers, your pastors, your principals. These people, because they have such a wide uh, range of influence, can influence so many people so deeply, are held more responsible for their influence because their influence is greater. Think then about Lucifer, the first person to actually become a sinner. Think about Adam and Eve, whose choices impacted this entire world for its duration. They are held responsible in a big way because their influence is so great. Our moral responsibility is generally proportionate to our reach, our influence. Influence is generally irrevocable. If I say to someone, you have free choice, and I let you make a choice and you make a bad one, I don't come along after the fact and say, well, you know what? I don't like your choice. I'm going to turn you into a moral robot. I'm going to make it so that you cannot do a bad thing anymore. No, usually the way it works, uh, the way God is set up in our world is you have been given the ability to make a moral choice, and then God does not take that back. Now what that means, however, is that any moral choices you and I make can harm or bless someone else. 
And God is not going to take that away from us, which means that we can hurt somebody and God will not stop us. It means that we can also bless someone and God will not stop us, right? So usually influence is irrevocable. God's not taking it back. Coercion does not come into play just because harm somehow looms on the horizon. So let me illustrate that. Jesus himself prayed, Father, oh, excuse me, there's some more to that, that he would pray to his Father and he would at once put my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. The first part somehow didn't show up on that slide, but it should. The idea being Jesus is praying and he's saying, I could ask God for lots of help to prevent the bad things that are going to happen to me, but I am not going to. Influence is generally irrevocable. Jesus did not pray that God would remove the ability of people to harm him, even though great harm would come to him as a result. Yet freedom is not infinite. The power to influence is limited. It's limited in a variety of ways. Uh, first off, it's not unlimited. We don't have unlimited uh, power to influence because we're created beings. We are not God. So as created beings, we have serious limits, limits that God does not have. For example, I cannot, uh, from, you know, from who I am, I cannot say, look, I want that car to, to, to uh, you know, miss the street and run into this tree just by thinking it. I can't do that. I don't have that kind of creative ability, right? God could, but I don't think he's going to do that, obviously. But the point being, created beings, just because of our very nature, have limits. But as we age, we also discover we have limits. I'm in my 60s now, and, and uh, you know, I don't have the ability to uh, play sports like I used to have. Is that true for some of you? Yeah? Or how about this one? Uh, my genetics also limit my abilities. How many of you think I would make a good NBA professional? How many of you think I can dunk the ball easily? No, you know, it's outside my limit, right? Um, and that's the way it is. You know, the free will of other people also limits uh, certain abilities that we have. Um, somebody, you know, I want to do something and somebody else does not want me to do it and they can stop me from doing what I want to do. So there's a lot of things. Sickness can stop us from doing certain things. As we get older, our power uh, to influence other people is sometimes severely limited. So that also means, of course, that our ability to bless other people and our ability to harm other people also is limited. It's limited because we're creatures. It's also limited more and more as we age. We have less and less of an ability to bless and to harm. So that's the cosmic answer, very quickly given. If love is to exist and to flourish, then sin must remain a hypothetical possibility. Sin does not have to be a probability, and it certainly does not have to be inevitable. It must, however, be hypothetically available. Why did evil actually arise, and why has it continued? 
I believe that sin does not have a reason for its cause or for its development. And this is established by any number of biblical truths. However, I have created, uh, thanks to Microsoft, what's called a smart art graphic. <laughs> so they, they did the art, that's the smart part, and I just fill in the content, right? In this case, I believe that these things establish the infinite goodness of God and the absolute innocence of God regarding the origin of sin or its development. So here are some of those items. Penetrating questions, godly expectations, the term without cause, innocence, both on the divine level and the human level, inexplicable actions that people engage in, and what I call Einstein's theory. So we'll get to that in just a little bit. These are some of the almost innumerable threads that are used in Scripture to establish God's goodness and his innocence regarding the origin and development of evil. So let's start with penetrating questions. And uh, here is the first one it, uh, that I want to look at. The first one actually comes earlier. It comes in Genesis chapter 3. But in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, God is talking to Cain, and he says, Why are you so angry? Why do you look so unhappy? And here are two questions that drill right down to the core of the matter. And they start with why. And those are always the deep questions, right? Why? Why? Whenever your child asks you the why question, that's when you begin to know that you are a created person. You know, you're a creature, not the creator. Because suddenly, you know, Dad, why is the sky blue? And you start scratching your head, right? But I want you to notice that God's questions here drill down with that first why. And I believe, and this is going to sound strange to some of you, but I'll back it up as we move on. I believe that God is genuinely mystified. He's puzzled. He does not, he cannot understand why Cain is angry and so unhappy. And I'm going to say more about that. Why didn't Cain, though, answer God's questions? So if you look through scripture, you, all you see is silence in the text. God asks these really deep questions. There's no reply. Why not? Why the silence? In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 2, we read, and this is God speaking, Why was no one there when I came? Why didn't anyone answer when I called? Is it because I have no power to rescue? No, that is not the reason, because I can. Now, some of these questions address the character of God. How has he treated, how will he treat people? But in all these questions, the party who is being addressed, who is being asked the questions, does not answer God. The only thing that comes back to God is silence. Why the silence? God's people ask penetrating questions in the scriptures as well. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, you'll remember a man named Prince Jonathan, and he asks his dad, King Saul, but why should David be put to death? What has he done? And uh, this was his father's response. How many of you think it is uh, reasonable? He threw a spear at him, his own son, heir to the throne. 
Violence was Saul's response to the question, not a logical answer. He explodes with anger. Why? Jesus asked some penetrating questions numerous times, I might add. Here's one. You'll remember the, the uh, setting. Uh, Jesus has come to the disciples walking on the water, and Peter says, Lord, you know, I'd like to do that too. You know, is that all right? And Jesus says, sure, come on out. And uh, somehow in that, uh, Peter takes his eyes off Jesus and uh, begins to look at the, the waves, and they're going up and down, and, and suddenly he becomes a little afraid. He begins to sink. Jesus asks Peter this question, why did you doubt me? Have you read that story? What answer does Peter give? None. What answer would have sufficed? None. That's why there was no answer forthcoming. In Mark chapter 3, verse 4, Jesus says to some Jewish leaders, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? And here it says explicitly what their response was. They were silent. Why? This was when Jesus healed a man, you remember, with the withered arm. Now, similar to the Jonathan and King Saul, guess what happens after this? They respond here immediately with silence. But they also respond with violence because the scriptures tell us in Mark 3, I think it's verse 6, that they went out and they began to figure out how they could put Jesus to death. They didn't answer Jesus' question, but they responded with deadly force. So when we commit various sins of what we call omission, when we don't do the right thing, what can we say? How many of you have ever been asked, say, as a child, you were a child, and your parents said, why did you do this? And you stayed silent. How many of you? Come on. Well, raise those hands a little higher. I can't see them. All right, you know what I'm talking about then, right? When you aren't doing, you know, the right thing, what can you say in your defense? Well, how about this one? When we do the wrong thing, then how can we justify our actions? So sins of omission, sins of commission, they leave us speechless. We can't defend ourselves. The silence of sinners testifies to God's infinite goodness and his absolute innocence regarding the origin of sin and its development or its continuance. God is in no way responsible for the rise of sin or the fact that it is still here today. Now, besides silence, there are other responses that sinners have made, you know, to penetrating questions. And uh, many times, in order to avoid responsibility, besides silence, we begin to make various excuses, right? We tell lies, or maybe we'll just tell a partial truth, which is, you know, in our minds, slightly different than telling a lie, right? Partial truth. Uh, or we might blame other people in the story we just read in Genesis. Isn't that not what Adam and Eve did? The woman you gave me, God, the snake you created, God, they blame other people, right? 
Uh, or you can offer an improper justification. A great example of that is in the story of King Saul, where uh, the prophet Samuel comes to him and says, uh, uh, why didn't you obey the command of God to destroy these, these various people? And Saul says to him, I did. And Samuel says, well, then how come I'm hearing all these sheep bleat? Do you remember that? And so Saul goes on and he goes, oh, oh, the people, they saved all that stuff so that they could give it to God as a sacrifice. Right. No, they saved that so they could pocket it. Improper justifications occur in Scripture. Or you could begin to scheme, you know, your way. There's a, a man in the, the New Testament, Jesus tells a parable, and that's the class I'm teaching at the university, the parables of Jesus. Jesus uh, gives a parable where there's this dishonest manager, right? And uh, he's being called to task by the guy who is the actual owner, and uh, he begins to scheme his way out of his problems. He goes to some of the people who owe his master money, and he goes, uh, how much does he owe you? And they say, and he says, write the bill for half that amount. Right? He schemes to get in their good graces so that they will be forced to take care of him when he gets the boot. So these are some ways in which people you know, avoid responsibility. But on the other side, if you want to take responsibility, it's real simple. If you've been in... You know, somebody's asked you about doing the wrong thing. All you have to say in response is, I did it. I'm sorry I did it. You could confess. And the Bible gives us illustrations of that. One time, uh, Nathan, the prophet, says to David regarding, of course, his uh, adultery with Bathsheba, he says, you are the man. And David said, I have sinned. Nehemiah confesses. Daniel confesses. Various people in the Bible give a, a very honest confession. They don't seek to avoid responsibility. So here's a quick summary, right? Penetrating questions and their varied responses all establish God's, and for that matter, Jesus' infinite goodness and innocence. They are in no way responsible for sins arising or its continuing. In fact, they actually had expectations that because of the good way in which they treat people, that people would respond to them correctly, positively, would love them in return. Let me give you an example of that as we move to godly expectation. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, we read... Um, a little bit of a parable of a uh, vineyard owner. And in that, uh, that parable, God is obviously the vineyard owner, and he asks this question, what more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I, what's that word? Expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? There's a parable in which a, a man goes away and he rents out uh, his uh, farm and then he sends some, some people back to collect uh, payment, and the people mistreat uh, his emissary, and then he sends another, and they mistreat that one, and it goes on for a while. And finally, he says, surely they will respect my son. 
That's an expectation. How many of you think that expectation was met positively in the story, the parable? Do you remember that parable? No, it didn't play out that way, did it, right? No, but God shows in Scripture numerous times that his expectation is that people would respond positively. Now, some people start thinking, oh man, how does this mess up my idea of God and his foreknowledge? But what we should be asking is this question. If God had anything other than an expectation that people would respond positively to his love, what would that say about God and his character? Because it would suggest that he thought that sin and bad behavior was in inevitable, maybe even right. But no way is that true. So God has and expresses expectations that people would respond positively to his love. There's no weakness in God's character and Jesus' character that, is, that has led people to sin. So these stated expectations lead us to believe that God is at a loss at knowing why someone would refuse his love. And it's not because God's ignorant or he's dumb, stupid. It's because no one really has a valid reason for not responding positively to his love. The Bible consistently then portrays sinful behavior as being without cause, and that's where we'll turn to next. So remember the slide before. Uh, Jonathan is, uh, says to his dad, but why should David be put to death? What has he done? And so after asking several penetrating questions, you know, Jonathan continues. And here's what he says. For David took his life in his hand when he attacked the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against an innocent person by killing David? And what's the phrase? Without cause. King Saul has every reason not to put David to death. Every reason not to do so. And yet, he does try. Why? Inexplicable, right? In this case, without cause. The scriptures also deal with the idea of hating Jesus without cause. In fact, Jesus makes this prominent in John chapter 15. He says, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Why? Why did they hate Jesus and his father? He goes on to say it was to fulfill the word that is written in their Torah. They hated me without a cause. They hated me with no reason, for no reason. No excuse for hating God or Jesus. There are literally hundreds of texts that express this concept uh, using different words. The Bible is very clear. There is no reason why sin arose in the first place or why it has continued. So we move on to innocence. Uh, the innocence of Jesus, for example. It says very clearly in numerous passages, and now I'm just going to give you one of, of, of you know, all the things that we're talking about. Even though they found no cause for a sentence of death, they asked Pilate to have Jesus killed. That's pretty clear, isn't it? 
Human innocence is also established in Scripture. Jeremiah was thrown into a dungeon and then into a well. And when he was thrown first into the dungeon and they were uh, bringing him, you know, well, not quite bringing him out. He, he was thrown into dungeon and he asked the king, he said to him very clearly, what crime have I committed? What have I done against you, your attendants, or the people that I should be imprisoned like this? And as you might expect, no answer really is forthcoming. The king takes him out of where he's being kept prisoner. They released him because his words were true. He was innocent. The innocent of Jesus and God's people helps establish the infinite goodness and absolute innocence of God regarding the rise of evil in our world and the universe itself. God is in no way sin's cause. He has done nothing to promote it or, or bring it into being. Sin then is totally unexplainable. And the only way, the only way to describe the actions of sinners is to call it what it is. An act of insanity. The insanity of sin helps us establish the infinite goodness of God and the absolute innocence of God. So when we go to inexplicable actions, we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3, this idea, the hearts of all are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they, while they live. So let me ask you a quick question. If somebody's heart is completely full of evil, how much room in it is there left? Well, then how is it that madness can also be in their heart? Unless, of course, those two ideas are parallel expressions. Evil is madness. Now, Ecclesiastes does not say that madness is evil because then we would not have any room to help people who have mental health challenges. We would just say they're being punished by God. But no, that's not the case. The Bible is very clear. Evil is madness, not the other way around. Evil is a species of insanity. Now, we have a very well-known writer in Adventism. Her name is Ellen White, and uh, she recognized this a long time ago. And here's what she had to say. All sin is selfishness. Satan's first sin was selfishness. He sought to grasp power to exalt self. A species of insanity led him to seek to supersede God. Read Isaiah chapter 14 if you want the details. The infinite value of the sacrifice required for our redemption reveals the fact that sin is a tremendous evil. Through sin, the whole human organism is deranged. The mind is perverted, the imagination corrupted. What does that word deranged mean? Well, arranged means to put in order, right? Deranged means to be completely out of order. But we also have with that a certain nuance. If I say the person's deranged, what am I saying? They're crazy, right? So here in this passage, she's talking about how through sin, the whole human organism has gone crazy. Have you wondered, for example, why it's so, you know, why there are so many illnesses and why it's so hard to sort out, you know, how to cure them? 
it's because your entire body has gone nuts thanks to sin. The Bible speaks of uh, one of the most insane acts ever, and that would be killing Jesus. We do crazy things. In Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching, and he says, But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now, just real quick. What's your name? Pat. Pat, can I ask you a question? Do you think it would be a good idea to kill the author of life? That would be a bad idea, wouldn't it? That may be a horrid idea, kill the author of life. But if it weren't bad enough, what would it be like, Casey, then to instead ask for a murderer to be granted life in his place? That is crazy, right? Crazy, crazy stuff. And I think that's the thing we need to remember when we read the scripture, that sin has deranged us all, making us do absolutely stupid things. Because the expected answer, I think, to the question is, you know, that's being asked, uh, you know, why would anybody do this? Well, nobody in their right mind would. Oh, we're not in our right mind. We're sinners. And the last one, of course, is Einstein's theory. And many people start scratching their head because they're thinking about his theory of relativity. But I'm thinking about his other theory. You've heard this one, right? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again while expecting different results. How many of you have ever told a lie and gotten caught telling your lie? And how many of you said, I'm never going to do that again? And how many of you did it again? Uh, the scriptures bear out the truth, by the way, of Einstein's theory of insanity. Uh, I could give you numerous places. The book of Judges is full of them. Think of Abraham who twice, not once, but twice goes to somebody and says, uh, this woman next to me, that's my sister. Or how about the, the many times that King Saul chases after David to kill him, loses every time but keeps doing it? Are you kidding? But in Isaiah 44, we learn about a crazy act that's repeated again and again and again. Somebody plants a tree, they chop it into pieces, they burn some parts, they uh, make a god from the tree, they worship that block of wood, and they even pray to it saying, would you please rescue me? Well, not only is the whole action stupid, but guess what? The prophets are constantly having to tell people, stop worshiping idols. Stop, 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 stop. Through the years, generation after generation, stop, stop, stop. So, I believe I've made plenty of moral mistakes more than once. And I can testify to the complete accuracy of Einstein's theory of insanity. We sinners do the same horrid thing over and over again while expecting different results. And guess what? The different results don't materialize. No surprise. So again, we have this writer, Ellen White, and she wrote some things that were powerful on the nature of, of, of evil. And here's what she had to say. It ties in very well with scripture. Sin, she says, is an intruder. 
for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious. Think of 2 Thessalonians, which speaks of the mystery of lawlessness. Sin is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. Could excuse for it be found or cause be shown for its existence, it would cease to be sin. Because then it would fit into the realm of the logical. In another place, she even went deeper than then and said, sin appeared in a perfect universe. The reason of its inception or development was never explained and never can be. Even at the last great day when the judgment shall sit and the books be opened, at that day it will be evident to all that there is not and never was any cause for sin. Well, these things, I believe, are very satisfying uh, as answers. Uh, the ones on the left tell us why was evil permitted? Because God wants to establish love, and love is worthwhile. The stuff on the right tells us, well then, how do we explain the rise of sin and its continuance? And the answer is, we don't. There's no answer available to us. It's completely unexplainable, theological, irrational, unreasonable. But love is surely worth the cost. And so today, I want to ask you this question. Why would you not ask God to take your sin away and put you on the right path? If you know that sin is nothing but damaging, completely unreasonable, indefensible, there's no reason why you should go down that path. Why would you not ask God to rescue you from sin? Why not? And would this, these ideas not also help you grow in your trust of God? You know that he's infinitely good. You know that he wants only good for you and for the people around you. Why would you not put your trust in him? And all of that would be followed are you putting your trust in him to take your sin away and help you become a person in your right mind just like Jesus came in with that uh, demoniac, garrison demoniac? And what does the Bible say? When Jesus was done with him, he was clothed and in his right mind. That's how Jesus wants to leave us all. Clothed in the robes of Jesus' righteousness, and in our right mind. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for giving us the scriptures. Thank you so much that we can study them through together. I appreciate everybody who was here today and asked that you would richly bless each of us, keep us safe. Thank you especially for those who came from the Methodist Church today. We were super blessed, and we know that you put it in their hearts and, and gave them that skill. And we just ask that you would continue to grow their skill and also draw them ever close to you. Bring us closer to you, and then the two of us as 